Hello and welcome to the Five Things Podcast. It's everything going on in social media this week. So every week we break down what's going on in the world of social media for you so that you can take it with you in your week ahead. This week, we've got Juliana. We've got Tommy. Hello, friends. Hi, hello, Joey. Looking forward to the week ahead on the information this week. Hello, hello. Oh my gosh, we've got we've got some real we've got some real doozies this week. Okay. So we've got some big developments from Facebook and YouTube. We got a couple topics around comment sections, and then we'll end by lightening things up. So Tommy's gonna talk to us about Facebook Halt's development on the Instagram Kids app. Juliana's gonna talk to us about YouTube banning all vaccine misinformation, which is a big one. Uh, Tommy's gonna talk to us about Twitter testing options to help users avoid negative comments in their in their interactions. And then we'll get into Australia ruling that media companies are liable for replies to their Facebook posts. And finally, TikTok introduces new creative tools for brand campaigns. All of that, we're going to dive into it right now with Tommy. Kick us off. What is going on with Facebook for Kids? In a stunning turn of events, we were discussing Facebook again and their pausing of Instagram kids due to the recent reports by the Wall Street Journal that Instagram was harming the mental health of its teenage users. So Instagram kids was basically an idea by the company that was a version of the app aimed at children under 13. Um, in a series of uh, tweets, Instagram chief Adam Asseri said that pausing the app came due to these reports and that he said... He had to believe that parents would prefer the option for their children to use an age-appropriate version of Instagram that gives them oversight than the alternative. But he's not here to downplay their concerns. We have to get this right, which explains why they paused it. The recent report, they said, raised a lot of questions for people, and uh, the app is already introducing a number of anti-bullying features. So Facebook says they're pausing the app, they're taking time, they're doing, they're taking note of the criticism, and they're moving forward in ways to improve Instagram. However, a recent report leaked by the Wall Street Journal again about Instagram said that Facebook's interest in understanding and acquiring young users extends beyond Messenger Kids, which is an already kid-approved version of Messenger, and the plans for Instagram Kids. It said that Facebook's internal research shows the company's focus on kids goes to studying children as young as four years old in hopes of designing better future projects. Um, an internal report quoted a Facebook exec saying that with the ubiquity of tablets and phones, kids are getting on the internet as young as six years old. We can't ignore this and we have a responsibility to figure it out. And another quote by an executive referred to playdates between four-year-olds as growth drivers. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. I'm just going to throw away the whole suitcase because <laughs> I think in this case, Facebook pausing Instagram kids was the right move, which is good because they haven't made a lot of <laughs> right moves right now. Um, they're getting a lot of criticism about this area, so it makes sense to pause it. This report, though, is a doozy. Um, saying that you view playdates as growth drivers is what we call in this industry a bad look. And so I think that it is important for brands to understand their younger audiences and make products towards them that they will want to use and purchase. However, you have to approach this very delicately. And 
it is unfortunate that Facebook doesn't seem to be doing it and that this report leaked before they were able to do so. Um, as soon as kids get involved, it's very tricky. And there is a point to be made that kids are using Instagram right now and it isn't supervised and you can't control the content they are on. But due to this report about targeting children as young as four and the Instagram kid development, it does seem, it just feels off. Um, and this will certainly lead to another wave of this, well, not another wave, we're gonna continue this hay wave that we've been on for the entire month of September against Zuck Incorporated. So I'm interested to see what you guys think of this, because there is a lot to unpack. And again, it is important for brands to understand their future market, but also how do you do it in a way that isn't that doesn't feel or is perceived as maybe gross as what it currently just came out about Facebook? That is that is, you're right. That is a ton to unpack. And what I think is interesting, Tommy, that you that you pointed out was that <clears throat> the the everything the Wall Street Journal has been uncovering recently. I wonder if if it's not uh, one thing that put this over, like if it wasn't the report about the play dates and how young they were looking at the audience size, or if it wasn't just uh, the internal report about um, about young young girls and their their body image and all that. But if it was actually more of like death by a thousand cuts and all of the all of the things that have been released, like you said, in the past month, uh, together are what led to, to this halt. Juliana, I'm curious what you think of, of all of this. Yeah, no, I, what, what's funny is, um, we actually, I remember we spoke about, uh, when Instagram announced that they're going to be developing Instagram kids, uh, back in March, 2021, uh, our kind of immediate reaction was, well, that's silly. Uh, just recognizing, you know, even without the wall street journal doing some leaks that, um, or rather, we had that reaction regardless of the Wall Street Journal kind of, you know, providing that information that I think affirmed our already existing belief that social media exposure to children who are very young probably isn't the best thing for them. And I did, I do think it's very interesting because there already was a lot of hesitance around the idea of having a space specifically for very young children, especially once you take into account, like, isn't there a reason why Instagram, Facebook, these type of apps have sort of a minimum age requirement because they can recognize that perhaps it isn't the most fruitful space for like the youngest developing minds. And so my feeling though, is that given that that was something that Facebook was still kind of fully rolling with since March, I feel as though this is probably the type of project that we're going to see is paused and then once maybe a little bit of the backlash dies down, going to be uh, brought back again. And I think we're going to have to continue having this conversation about the appropriateness of marketers and businesses specifically trying to get younger and younger individuals to participate. Yeah, I thought what was really interesting, too, about the research was that um, Facebook was conducting when they were conducting their research on on the younger users, they attributed some of it to the success of Snapchat and TikTok. And what's interesting about that is they're using this sort of lightning in a bottle that TikTok and Snapchat got with younger users and trying to regenerate that in a way that feels not organic. Um, I'm curious what what you what you both think of like, do you think do you think Facebook is clouded by their sense of competition? I think definitely. In Adam Masseri's Instagram post, he actually mentions uh, TikTok and Snapchat by name, 
So that was a really interesting choice by him. And it does make sense. There are kids using this app. I downloaded Snapchat when I was, you know, 12 years old. I was a tween. But I think everything Facebook has been doing recently with reels, with all this trying to get into the short form game and attract its younger audiences, it's definitely been clouded or inspired, I should say, maybe by TikTok, by their competitors. And hearing um, Masseri say that just full out chest voice was really interesting. And it was a really, I think, a good glimpse into the mind of the company, how they're desperately trying to attract this audience. Because I'm younger kids don't use Facebook, really. I mean, some do, but it really is for older audiences. And so to have a whole new generation come up that isn't using you, I can understand why the platform is so concerned about that and trying to reach kids. But again, it's just the way they're doing it. And the perception of Facebook in general can be so negative that it, it is, as you said, Joey, it's unorganic. It feels clunky. It feels odd. It just, it's not the space for young people to interact. So I think that's kind of the disconnect we're seeing. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, these GMSM, genetically modified social media type of idea. Um, I think what you're showing here, right, where like TikTok and Snapchat just happen to exist in a format that is very appealing to the way that younger audiences want to engage with people now. They recognize that there's the ability of kind of the globalization of relationships, that, you know, online communities are a great way to find yourself. Also in the same way that you want to be able to speak very hyper-local to people that know you specifically. So the TikTok versus Snapchat difference. I think the one space where we saw that it was wise for there to be a very like segmented off children's only area was with YouTube, just recognizing that the algorithm can accidentally lead you into Prager U videos, at the very least, if you're someone like myself who watches, you know, our 30 minute long commentaries. And so it just made a lot of sense to have a space specifically for children to be able to watch. But with the idea of social media like Facebook or Instagram, where it is really just kind of like at its base, photo sharing, having a space that's just specifically for children to be able to share photos with one another it, it begs the question of like what use case exactly is that is being filled in there. And I think that's where you get a lot of the hesitation and the pause because there isn't a particular reason that that type of platform needs a children's arm to it. Um, and so you can only really look at the, the kind of core corporate, uh, you know, bottom line thinking that, that, fe- that fuels that. And I think that's really where, you know, Facebook has that uphill battle. Yeah. Well, speaking of YouTube, uh, we need to we need to jump into this big story. Uh, YouTube banned all vaccine misinformation from its platform. This was huge news. I was getting New York Times notifications about it. I feel like I've seen this headline a bunch. Uh, Juliana, break it all down for us. Talk to us about YouTube. Yeah, it's actually really surprising because for something that was going to have amazing implications, uh, you know, good, bad, whatever have you, at the very least, it's definitely going to be a sort of, you know, BC, uh, AC moment for YouTube. Um, it's pretty simple. So YouTube said uh, a little bit earlier in the, the week that it's going to be banning the accounts of several prominent anti-vax activists from its platform, um, and that this is part of a larger effort to remove all content that falsely claims that approved vaccines are dangerous. So while this, I think, is something we've gotten a lot more comfortable with um, since the COVID-19 kind of effort to social media to try and dissuade information from spreading, this is 
more interesting because it's it's speaking to videos that are claiming that any vaccine can you know cause autism that it that you know reduce rates of transmission or contraction of diseases like that's not actually something that's going to provide um you know that it has you know negative implications for health this is for any and all vaccines so you're talking about polio you're talking about the flu you know just not not solely covid-19 and that's really where it's going to have this kind of startling impact um you know across the platform just because of how much sort of certain spaces of misinformation and anti-vax ideology uh tend to emerge and so with this you know the the question of course is how exactly is that going to how exactly is it going to play a role in those spaces where you know health wellness misinformation perhaps like you know uh alternative uh ideology kind of all intersect because the point of youtube doing this is essentially trying to you know hit a fly with a hammer it's really hard to pull apart people who are just speaking kind of loosely about anti-vax ideology and people speaking specifically about anti-covid-19 vaccine ideology and so if you just kind of spay the whole area you you capture the whole uh situation and so of course, you know, really the question is going to be what is this going to look like for those spaces where their politics and their vaccine misinformation thoughts, whatever have you, all merge. If it's going to end up being something similar to like a Twitter or a Facebook where once they start saying that, you know, hate speech isn't allowed, you have perhaps certain political cohorts saying that they're being stifled. Um, it's going to be wild. I'm very interested in seeing how it, how it plays out, but can definitely see there being a bit of a, a public outcry rolling out from this, um, from spaces who feel like they're being targeted. For sure. I actually have a question for each of you on this one. So Tommy, I'm curious what, what jumped out to you the most about this report and this story? I think what Juliana said, the hitting the fly of the hammer, the fact that it's not just a topical, oh, ban all COVID-19 vaccine misinformation, but going beyond that, it's targeting all misinformation about vaccines and about health in general in that sense. Because YouTube as you said earlier, Juliana, you're on fire today. It really can be a spot where people fall into the algorithm and see video over video of potentially misinformation, indoctrination kind of stuff. And if you keep getting pulled into that, I mean, it's going to have a real effect on people. And so I think luckily this is a really bold take from the platform of being like, you know what? You're all gone. You cannot play in this realm which is great because, I mean, this, along with Facebook, are real sites of misinformation and breeding ground for this wave of, you know, the horse tranquilizer of it all, the run on, um, you know, drugs that are not actually going to cure COVID-19, but people are taking anyway. And so I'm really happy that they took the stance. I think it's going to do a, a net positive of good. But there are some, I saw in the article, there's some weird middle ground stuff like People can post videos of a child having a negative reaction to a vaccine and talk about that. But if the entire channel is just videos about like that sort of testimonial style, then that would be banned. So it's going to be a lot for the platform to figure out. And I think that's why that it's taken so long for them to make this sort of stance. But I think the thing that stuck out to me was that this is a stance. It is a bold move by YouTube. And I was very happy to see it pop up on my New York Times page. I think exactly to, to what um, Tommy's saying, you know, of course, this is a very interesting sort of middling space. And I think with many of the um, with many of the kind of like the policies that social media sites try to put in place, you're going to see people trying to find out where they can kind of split the middle. And the fact that 
you know, it's different from say Facebook or Twitter or even TikTok where the videos are very short and it's about, you know, having the printed word of you professing you know, information that is untrue. If someone's posting, you know, multi-hour long YouTube videos or even a video where they just kind of throw something out there about vaccines within it, you know, you're, I think you're going to see a lot of kind of conversation about like how far do you have to go in order for this policy to be enacted against you? So uh, again, I think, you know, it's, it's definitely a great step in the right direction. I think with all things, it's going to be a bit of growing pains and trying to enforce it. But ultimately, um, you know, I, I think one, this is a really interesting move from YouTube. And two, I definitely think we should follow up on this and see how, how it rules out. Yeah. I mean, like you said, Juliana, I think the, it, it, what's interesting is that you, you hit on the other platforms and you kind of answered my question before I asked it, which is great. It feels like this, it, it feels like with YouTube, this will have the most impact because this, this is a platform, like you said, with longer form content with, you know, that serves you more content similar to it. So I think this is really, really good coming from YouTube and probably the most impactful from all the platforms um, with actions like this. Okay, so a lot going on with YouTube. Let's jump into Twitter, who are testing options to help users avoid negative comments for their in-app interactions. Tommy, why don't you take it away, friend? So Twitter has previewed several new control options which would help users avoid negative interactions and the mental stress that can come with them. They developed new filter and limit options which would be designed to help users keep potentially harmful content and the people who create it out of their mentions. Um, this new content can help users automatically filter out replies which contain potentially harmful or offensive remarks. It also could block users who repeatedly tweet at them. You can block messages from accounts from even replying to you in the future. But even more significant, the filter option allows you to hide any tweet. And this is a, a currently a thing, but if you, you, if you hide a tweet, it's only from your screen. People can still see the tweet. Now you can hide it from everyone on the website. So it's totally up to the power of the individual to control the conversation. There's also a heads up feature, which would alert users to potentially messy chain of tweets that way they know it's sort of like a trigger warning of sorts so these new developments to me are all in line with the fact that twitter is trying to make itself as monetizable as possible and attract a new slew of audiences that were potentially turned away from the user base of the app or just as we talked about earlier with the creation of communities the lack of context that comes with Twitter. So they're really trying to attract new users and make the space as accessible as possible. And that's great for users and brands. We're being given a space that's more accessible, that allows us to have more positive interactions potentially. But my first thought from this is, as people now have total control over their conversations, they can choose which app, they can choose which comments rather, are able to be seen. And this ability to me kind of raises some red flags. If someone like, you know, a Donald Trump had the ability to hide tweets in 2019 from everyone on the website, it could potentially lead to some negative outcomes. Luckily, you can still see the original tweet, you can still quote tweets, so it's not like you're totally erasing conversations, but you are controlling what is said and what is seen by pretty much everyone on the app. So I think 
there's a lot of good that can come from this. There's a lot of, again, more accessibility, more users can feel comfortable using the app, which is great for both brands using Twitter and for the platform itself. But I think we should probably be wary of the ability to control narratives so closely or so powerfully because Twitter as it exists now is a real-time call and response website. People are interacting and exchanging ideas in the moment. And so giving one party all the power, you know, again, it kind of makes you wonder how people use this in the future. So I'm excited to see or interested to see what you guys think about this. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, you know, almost like any tool could have its um, its good use case and perhaps uh, negative use case. I'm curious, though, and Joyan, I'd love to hear your your thoughts on this. How how this could impact brands, either positively or negatively, or um, if it will impact brands at all. Well, I mean, the like you're saying, the positive and the negative of Twitter is that you get people's response, right? Like you get their actual feelings or emotions. And I feel like in the same way of say a company on Glassdoor or a company on Yelp saying like, Hey, can you pull the stuff that shows that people don't really like particular actions that we've taken or, you know, the way that we uh, conduct ourselves or even something that we put out in the world for a brand possibly to adopt this and, you know, remove any filter out any comments that aren't flattering, for example, and to allow people to maybe have an organic discourse that begins to unroll in a way that, you know, isn't the most favorable to the brand. You're then effectively skewing the data, not only from, you know, what people's actual responses were, but also on the back end of your data analytics team, trying to understand what people actually think about your work. You know, if perhaps like one person's quote retweet was going to unearth that there was a massive oversight in the way that, you know, the, the ad connected itself. I'm thinking like year, that years back dub example of the black woman removing the T-shirt, revealing herself to be white. And, you know, it just happened to be the optics of implying that there was like a dirtiness related to black skin. You know, that's not something that anyone in the team intended to be, uh, you know, communicated, but it was people's response that highlighted that massive oversight. But if you can essentially, you know, get rid of anything that says like, I don't like, or, you know, racism, question mark, exclamation point, then we're never going to be able to actually understand how we can optimize and grow and perhaps different ways the brand should behave because they're not looking with the, you know, they don't have the ability to be omnipresent. So I, I understand because Twitter does uh, encourage that kind of um, angry mob energy that they would want to create a more uh, palatable experience. But I also don't think that the people who come on Twitter and get angry about the fact that they're getting so much you know, hate or getting all these replies, I, I don't think that means that they're going to stop using Twitter. I think, yes, people are complaining about it, but I don't think that means that somehow the app isn't going to be engaged with. So I think it might have been just kind of a an overreach that it, as far as brands um, are concerned, uh, while it might be nice to use, I don't think that the those with the best intentions will utilize it. Yes. Um, so from one comment section to the other, uh, let's let's talk about uh, Australia's rules um, and uh, and what they've been talking about with uh, Facebook posts. So Juliana, why don't you tell us about what's going on in Australia? You know, I am so excited because I'm. Wish I could do an Australian accent, but I won't for the sake of this podcast. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I will keep that to myself. Um, this is a pretty, this is a pretty you know, shocking piece of info. Um, the Australian government recently ruled that media companies are liable for replies to Facebook posts. Uh, so the the background of this is that a uh, individual, a Mr. Voller, he sort of became famous overnight back in 2016. Uh, after a television expose on mistreatment of juveniles in the country's criminal detention system. Uh, in that broadcast, they had a photograph of him um, that you know, he was kind of similar to the, the, you know, the photo from Abu Ghraib. He was hooked and strapped to a chair by guards. It was very graphic, very visceral. And so many individuals were shocked, but also a lot of individuals who were in the comment section of you know, that video where it was posted in various places, but most importantly, Facebook, you had a lot of commenters uh, making pretty you know, wild accusations about, you know, Mr. Voller's criminal history, his, his proclivities, you know, his, uh, uh, you know, perhaps his relationship with, with, um, you know, drugs and crime, things like that, uh, things like that. And what's very interesting, because I think we've seen in a lot of instances, you know, people coming forth to that and, and trying to have like a direct conversation about like libel and slander from the individual, the way that Mr. Voller decided to approach it instead was to sue the news media outlet that, you know, had that video posted on Facebook, who were allowing people to, you know, create these comments defaming him and, and not putting a, a stop to it. And, well, you know, he won, <laughs> uh, which I think is something that, you know, he, perhaps if you're, you're also coming from the U.S., you never would have expected to have happened. Um, the country's top court essentially said that, yes, you know, the, the content that these um, individuals are posting on Facebook, you know, it's drawing eyeballs to Facebook, it's keeping people engaged in Facebook. And the type of conversations that you're allowing on these platforms is part of, you know, what allows you to be viable to advertisers, it allows you to be, you know, a, a house for money. So you also have to be responsible for what people are putting on there if it is misinformation or just outright a lie, right? And what that essentially boils down to now is even if you're not aware of people posting hateful, ignorant, incorrect comments, it is something that the platform could be liable for. And moreover, that the media outlets who are posting those videos on Facebook could be liable for. And it's just, I think, wildly intriguing how that, you know, how that falls out, especially knowing that there's been so much conversation about the platform just kind of being a vessel for people to be able to engage freely and, and, and do whatever they want. Now you have a lot of media outlets saying, well, we can't post things about, you know, politics or, or, you know, court decisions or, you know, race relations on Facebook, because if people are in the comment section, you know, fomenting, uh, you know, slanderous or, uh, you know, defamatory me uh, messages, that's going to end up being, you know, our problem. That's going to end up being, you know, a way that we're going to have to be be liable to the the individuals that are being posted about. So it has a lot of media outlets kind of at a pause, uh, at the very least in Australia, if they're going to, you know, be continuing in this relationship with Facebook to the degree that they have, um, which I think is, you know, wildly intriguing. Just knowing how much over the past two-ish years, uh, Facebook's relationship with media has been kind of a a tenuous one at that. Uh, so yeah, I think it's just very interesting as far as, you know, the, the Australian court and what this is going to do for not only media outlets, Facebook page administrators, anyone who has a, you know, I love fat cats, uh, pay a group on Facebook who, you know, perhaps is going to be battling the, that's unhealthy for your cat people. It, it, it has so many implications. And I think, you know, 
while it is only in Australia, um, it'll probably say a lot with how Facebook is going to have to operate in the future. Yeah. So here's my oversimplified uh, hypothetical question of the week. Uh, Tommy, I'm going to direct it towards you. What would happen if we turned off the comment sections? That's a great question. I'm sure this report has a lot of people at Facebook saying, Nar, um, sorry, I have to pull the Australian jewels. I don't have the same straight that you do. If you turn off the comments, then Facebook at that point becomes sort of just, I, I, my first thought's BuzzFeed, but with BuzzFeed also thrives on comments. It just becomes a place where you share photos and see headlines with no nuance or maybe then it will lead users to actually, you know, maybe read an article, which could be probably very good for them. And it removes kind of the community interaction bit of Facebook. I think what's so damning about this ruling is that Facebook comments are famous. They kind of make the company what it is. It's that kind of, it's the people you meet under there, the voices you see, the takes you never thought someone actually would make in real life. It gives people a freedom to express thoughts that you wouldn't necessarily express when you're just face-to-face and connects people who would never otherwise be connected. So I think if you take the comments out of Facebook, it becomes a totally different website. It becomes a whole different ballgame. And one, I think that's a lot worse for wear and that the company would rather not ever see happen. I mean, it's very telling that CNN is no longer letting content be seen in Australia. They're totally removing themselves from the equation. And so we're going to have to see a lot of decisions being made about how comments will be used, about how media companies will interact on the platform in the future. But I truly can't imagine a Facebook without comments. I'm interested, uh, Juliana, what you have to say. Yeah, no, I think twofold. Uh, and I'll address the, the second point because I think you brought up something very interesting in how CNN has chosen to deal with it. But I think up top, exactly like you're saying, Facebook without comments is just a weird community board in a library that you don't like going to right? Just, it's just noise. It's just things. The point is the ability to kind of just like pop off and then say whatever. Um, and especially with respect to media, because it is a lot of people like say, just sharing an article and then a bunch of people responding to it. Or, you know, those articles, of course, uh, having their original source material being those, the CNNs, the WAPOs, the whomever, that is kind of the, the, the starting point for those conversations. The idea of those being silent at the very least like underneath the page uh i i think that has like a very big implication to the way that facebook kind of is like fluidly moving and also the idea that if it's just the article no comments will people have the same sort of emotional reaction uh that encourages them to share it amongst their friends if they do have to sit and read through it instead of having you know like mike's trucks 757 underneath giving you his top line of what the article is about <laughs> and you think it's so important you've got to share it with your family so that's one element of it you know i think it'll probably slow the speed with which information is shared across facebook and how long people are on facebook um if this were something to, to spread um and then also you know of course from a, a brand perspective i'm thinking you know even brands that we we have here at our agency like if the best a man can be what would that look like with, you know, comments turned off uh, because, you know, the ability for people to to uh, respond in a pretty intense and policy-breaking ways. So that's one arm. The other arm is when you have media outlets that are then saying, like, okay, I guess we just won't share information with this entire country. <laughs> um, you know, where what does that mean for the places, the people that are going to try and perhaps the people that don't care as much about, um, you know, getting 
getting taken down if you, fewer legitimate sites want to share information with a large swath of the public. You know, who exactly is going to be left for them to, to get their news from? So doubly interesting. Um, again, it's, it's, not, it's not Mark Girl Summer. It's definitely not even Mark Zuck Ball. It's, 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 it's a really weird time to be uh, at the, the Facebook headquarters. Oh, you just reminded me of uh, a really funny, uh, perhaps, meme that you could make, Tommy, of uh, Facebook unlo- revealing um, kids' Instagram, and it says, my fall plans. And then right next to it, <laughs> it could be the Washington Post, and it says, the Delta variant. <laughs> <laughs> there could be a whole domino effect of a Wall Street Journal reporter opening yeah. an email, and then maybe we'll see, like, you know, Zuckerberg in, in front of Congress again. <laughs> I think that is happening soon, actually. Maybe not Zuckerberg himself, but I think there are officials from Facebook uh, in front of Congress very soon. Uh, and when that happens, we will talk about it. Okay, let's shake off all that because now we're going to lighten things up here. We're going to talk about TikTok, one of our favorite things to talk about. Um, as well as all their creator tools that they've got going on for brands. So, Tommy, there's a lot going on in TikTok world. Tell us all about it. I mean, you said it yourself. It's TikTok's world and we're all living in it. TikTok just had their TikTok world business event this past week, which I attended. It was as insane and it was as insane as you would imagine it to be from TikTok. Suni Lee showed up. There were drag queens. There were analytics. There were creator tools. The whole the whole gamut. And there was a lot of stuff. We could have an entire podcast about this one event. But there's a bunch of new creator tools and details I think we should talk about and highlight. One is that there's a new version of the TikTok creator marketplace, which includes more performance insight, better tools to help brands and creators connect and work together. Um, There's a new ability to have brands post campaigns on the site and have influencers self-apply, which is great because you can weed out people you're not interested in just by people wanting to do it themselves as opposed to trying to, you know, make a square peg fit in a round hole. TikTok also announced a new initiative called the TikTok Creative Exchange, which is a sort of self-serve portal that will match brands with vetted creative service providers to help them produce high-performing ads suited to their brief and objectives. It will enable TikTok to better match brands and more complete ad creation providers, which will help guide them through the whole process from brief to conception to ad being placed there's new dynamic ads which will involve users having to like, slide, unlock content, which will be amazing for recall. There's a whole, there's so much to talk about. But I think one more before I hand it off and start asking questions is that TikTok also totally rebuffed e-commerce. There's four more new partnerships in line, more than just Shopify. And they're really seeing a lot of growth happen in the e-market space. So to me, all this on top of the fact that TikTok just reached 1 billion users, that's billion with the B friends, they're really marketing themselves as the place to go to for brands looking to engage on social. It is the premier place for brands looking to make a memorable campaign that users will see, connect with, and hopefully purchase products from. So I think all of these new developments 
all of this new features, the ability for brands to better connect, the amount of users, and the algorithm, which again is still all-knowing and unknowable, one of those powerful things out there. TikTok is TikTok's the spot. It's the place to be. And we're going to see even more brands start to go into the folds. We've now had about a year and a half of TikTok being what it was. And so now I think TikTok's reaching a kind of a maturity in the sense. And brands know how to use the space. And I think we're going to see a lot more cool stuff happen in the future. So I'm interested to see what y'all think about these new developments. Can I say, I... Um... I'm unfortunately someone who really likes to attach to probably the least interesting detail in a story like that, where, you know, TikTok is doing so many interesting things. The part I found the most intriguing uh, you brought up is that now influencers can essentially match themselves to campaigns that brands are trying to do. It's like Indeed or, you know, like ZipRecruiter <laughs> for, for influencers, you know, where you can say like, hey, I think I have what you would like, but instead of having it to be sort of a... Influencer just saying, hey, hey, here are my stats. Uh, you know, do you have anything in the works that might be of interest? You now are having campaigns, or rather, uh, marketers that are able to say, like, hey, this is something we're trying to do. Here's kind of just like the overview. Who would like to be interested? And so it's just very funny how you know the the wheel is constantly sort of being reinvented. Of it's just you know a job application for, for influencers. Um, but I think it'll be really intriguing, especially as we see more, you know, influencers being able to have a entirely viable brand and life off of, you know, accounting for themselves, being their own agent, being their own, you know, AE, like it's, it's very being their own EA. I think it's very interesting how much more independent uh, influencers are going to be able to have when they're able to speak to brands directly. So love that. What, uh, Tommy, what type of brands do you think could really benefit uh, from tools like this? I think a lot of lifestyle brands would be well off using these kind of tools. I think, you know, I don't know why my first thought was Goop, because Goop is a whole different kind of world separate from TikTok. But I feel like probably cosmetics, clothing lines, I think stuff that's very um, tactile and visually impressive, or at least interesting to look at, will really find a great way to use these new tools and work with influencers and make something that's very impressionable and that sticks. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I look forward to seeing where this goes. I hope this doesn't, uh, hope this doesn't have any effect on the agency world. <laughs> we all still hope we all still have jobs. <laughs> Joey, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> yeah. Right. What were you saying, Tommy? I said, I have some bad news. I think it will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Super impressed, but I also have to pay rent. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, that does it for us this week, friends. Uh, and if we all still have jobs, we'll be here again next week, uh, breaking everything down <laughs> on the five things. Um, if you don't already, please follow us on Apple and Spotify. If you have questions, comments, concerns, points of interest or complaints, please reach out to us at podcast at gray.com. I want to thank Juliana and Tommy, as always, for joining me on the pod and Danielle behind the scenes. Also want to give a special shout out this week uh, to Justin Sloan over at Gramercy Park Studios, who's been helping us out with mixing the show over the past couple of weeks. And uh, shout out to Guy Rosemarin, who is back. Uh, he's our buddy. And I also want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to go on this journey with us into all things social. Um, so 
That's it for us. We'll see you next week. Bye. The Five Things are produced by Joey Scarillo and Danielle Hunt. Mixed at Gramercy Park Studios by Guy Rosemarin with support from post-producer Ned Martin. Additional support by John Jenkinson and Christina Hyde. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.